Good morning. I'll invite you to open up your text if you brought your Bible with you uh, to John chapter 1. We're continuing on in John's gospel, looking at the uh, beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it, it may seem somewhat familiar to you now after a couple, a uh, few weeks of hearing the same passage over and over again. So I'll give you some uh, focus this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at verse 4 and then again with uh, the last few verses, verses 11, 12, and 13. So in John chapter 1, if you have your Bible, open it up. If you have your electronic Bible, keep that open for me this morning as well as we read from God's Word. John's gospel is uh, unlike many of the other gospels. It doesn't start the same sort of way. It starts with this almost difficult prologue, and the crowning achievement of that prologue is, in, I would say, in verse 4. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That's the light that we celebrated this last week with the Illumination Walk as well. This light, this theme of Advent that's been coming up over and over and over again. But let's be reminded in verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John has something to say about life, seemingly more than all the other uh, gospel writers combined, actually. Uh, John uses the word for life over 40 times. All the other gospel writers, Matthew and and Mark and Luke, uh, they they don't use it near that, uh, near near half that much. Because John knew something, I think, about life. He knew something about the importance of it. Actually, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, if you remember, John chapter 20, if you still have your Bible open, you can look at verse 31 there. John says why he wrote his gospel. He wrote it so that you may believe all these things that are written about Jesus Christ and that by believing in them, you may have, does anyone remember? Life in his name. That's right. The disciples had been there when they had heard Jesus say, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance or have it to the full. But now, as John writes, all that remained were these these stories told by a Mary clamoring downstairs in the much more quiet life that, uh, that they both lived now that Jesus had gone. John in his gospel doesn't catch our attention with a long list of names like at the genealogy, you know, linking pasts and presents, you know, fathers and sons and all that. No, it's not about careful child planning. No parental wisdom went into this. Mary, who is badgered every year, peppered with questions about what she knew and when, What we do know from the Gospel of Luke is that both Joseph and Mary were surprised with the child. And that an angel was the one that had to give them the news, told them, don't be afraid. (laughs) First children, right? (laughs) 
Children can do that to you, you know, kind of creep up on you, almost like in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, poof, like a pair of cold feet, they're there. Um, Everything was disrupted for them. Their life, their marriage. Everything was in trouble from the very start. Pastor Nicole and Brian and, and, uh, and Ben and Ryan and Ashley, I'll tell you, they need your prayers. <laughs> to reiterate, those uh, who didn't catch it, there's, they are expecting um, both uh, in this one household, Ryan and Ashley are expecting with a due date of Christmas Day, <laughs> talk about family planning, um, and, uh, and next June, which gives a little bit more breathing space for Pastor Nicole and Ben, thankfully, but yet they will covet your prayers, I'm sure, because life has this property, and they will learn this. Life has this quality to it. It catches you off guard. Life can surprise you. Unfortunately, death has the same quality. And so, we ask the question, why, why have we been waiting I mean, that's a great question. I mean, Lisa, that's a, that's a great question. Why have we been coming? Why have we been asking God to come, pleading with him to come? It's because we wait. Because the kingdom doesn't seem so ruly. And then the baby comes, you see, and then <clears throat> everything changes. But in our text, you see, there's no birthing suite. It's a cattle stall instead. That couldn't have been planned. <laughs> and they're surrounded by friends and family, lineups around the block with casseroles and flowers and all this. Nope. None of that there. Not this time. Life would come. It would come, but by no means would it be easy. It's not the way that anyone would have planned it. It's not. Life was not easy, and perhaps that's why John gets around all the other details of the event. Doesn't talk about shepherds or angels and just summarizes it in in this one detail, in this one sentence, in him was life. And that life was the light to man. <laughs> Even the life of Jesus begins rather along the way. Do you know what I mean? As our first encounters with Jesus in, in John, he's not a mewling child. He's walking. And he's talking back to his mother, so he must be at least a teenager. I'm kidding. But as an adult, we have him at the wedding of Cana when he says, woman, my time has not yet come. He turns water into wine to celebrate a meal instead. He was a life giver. And John highlights this. But he doesn't tell you of all the narrow escapes that happened at, his, at the onset of his life, in his childhood. Sure, <clears throat> he's meeting officials at night in John chapter 3 when he's meeting with Nicodemus, but it's under the cover of dark, we must remember. 
Because Jesus wasn't born in a Winnie the Pooh nursery or in a hospital ward. There was a flight to Egypt to save this child before he was born. Herod was the ruler at the time was systematically killing young boys, killing them in an attempt to ensure that his own power remained firmly within his grasp. In him was life. Not if Herod had anything to do with it. Jesus left behind at the temple when he was a child. This would have been enough for him to have been snuffed out, a child alone at a busy time in an unknown city. Every parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? Ripe for the taking, for the trading, for the selling off. His life was always in jeopardy. From the very beginning, he wore a crown of thorns in that manger, as it were. Maybe, maybe the manger makes more sense. This is the challenge in coming to a broken world, you see. Jesus is life. But this world is such a dark and increasingly lonely place. Where could he come that it would make sense? We have been walking through this illuminated trail of John chapter 1 for all of Advent, stopping to notice the timelessness of starry nights, imagining the same sky above us as above Van Gogh or even, or even Jesus. And as we seek to express our inner Christmas joy and love, we decorate with the lights and the delight other people with our gifts but it is also that time of year when we recognize in the midst of all of the silver bells ringing under that din can be the silent sob of, sh- of tears shed in quiet pain. Our ears can be dull this time of year, too busy to notice some of the signs. And yet we find in the midst of all the life-giving moments of Christmas, loss and grief and pain are still at the door. We need only imagine back to Vincent and how on Christmas morning in 1888 in Paris, confused and alone, Refusing to answer question in a stupor delivers a fumbled box containing his ear to a woman friend of his. Some say to make the voices in his head stop. He didn't have anything else to give. What else could he give but a piece of himself? His friend, or supposed friend, Paul Gauguin, is telling the police, he's a madman. He did it to himself. What do you want? A police nod, and they look at Vincent. He's estranged again. He peels off into the night. Vincent, where are you going? Come back. We must call on your brother. Let's call Theo. Vincent refuses to tell them about Theo. It's Christmas Day, and so it takes a couple of days before they get a hold of him. He would do this again. It would be July, July the 28th in 1890. In the summer, while suffering from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the belly. 
two days of searing pain, hiding alone in his room, refusing care and refusing food. He was refusing life. And suicide survivors are left to ask questions that can never be answered. How? Why? What if I were here? And in the midst of that pain, of the tragedy, the guilt, and the loss, and we can, we can find ourselves resolved to the pain to give in, to admit that life is hard and death must be easy and that pain will never end. And these are the lies that fly counter to the very person and the very message of Jesus Christ. As he reveals himself through John, he says, he has come that we may have life. We can find it in his name. That is the good news. That's why we call them the gospel. You may not know that word, but gospel, it's an old English word. It comes from good spell. It means good story. I like a good story. It comes from the Greek, eu, meaning good, and angel, where we get the word evangelism. It comes from the Greek, euangelos. It means good news. John was an evangelist giving us the good news. And he writes these stories down so that we may find life in his name. If you don't know Jesus and you don't know the peace that can come from knowing him, we can begin to know him through this good news, through these gospel stories. See, John does a marvelous thing for us of showing us who Jesus is. Actually, just following this, so as you continue your study in John, you'll read after this, shortly after this, seven different things that Jesus does. And John uses, I, I, I did this in Dig Deeper, I said, anytime I use the word miracle, stop me, because it's not a miracle. In John, he uses signs. He wants these signs to be pointing us to something. That's the difference between a sign and a miracle. And John lists seven different signs for us. First is the changing of water into wine in chapter 2. If you keep reading, he will heal the royal official son in chapter 4. He heals a paralytic by the pool in John 5. Feeds 5,000 with meager loaves and fishes in John 6. He walks on water in the same chapter. John 9, he is healing a man born blind. And in John chapter 11, my favorite and Vincent's both, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The signs of Jesus, as accounted for by John, all culminate in one final sign. The power over death itself, as one pastor wrote some 400 years ago. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me.
I mean to pause for just one moment to address anyone who may be struggling with that very same pain of self-worth or may have been hearing above the din the lie more than the truth. That life is not worth living, that nobody loves you, and that there's no way forward. Friend, let me tell you that the good news and the promises of God are that he gives life. The world and the devil in this world would like to tell you that you are worthless and nameless. He may feed 5,000, but they weren't nameless and faceless. He knows them by name, and he knows you by name too. There are some days when you may not feel that. For those who may be listening online as well, you may find some mental health resources in our description box as well. Don't listen to that lie. For the truth is, God loves us so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life in his name. We know that Christmas can be an especially difficult time and that loneliness is real. In the midst of starry nights and Christmas lights, we're reminded that that loneliness, that pain is something that was real for this artist as well. He had hopes for love too. We know this because of his letters. He fell in love often, but was often refused. And in one sad case, an accident claimed the life of one who might have been his wife. Vincent even hoped for faith. John was his favorite book of the Bible, often quoting it in his letters to his brother. But in the midst of his confusing calls and his letters home where he's enjoying the Parisian streets and absinthe and prostitutes, every facsimile of the joy he wanted, it's not the satisfaction. He wasn't able to find it. And so, in that loneliness and in that despair, he finds himself tragically taking his life. It's six months later, shortly after Christmas, where his brother Theo passes away too, buried beside him, together at last and for one final time. Their life, recorded in letters to each other, A young man who kept a strange company, bereft of life, wasted away, sans friends, sans family, sans everything. I I look at the person of Vincent in contrast to the person of Jesus. Vincent, who started so late in life, yet was so creative and talented, also kept a strange company about himself, too somewhat cryptic in his writing, (laughs) his answers back to questions. Both Vincent and Jesus were no strangers to pain. 
As I recall, Jesus probably shared the same last meal as Vincent. Some bread, perhaps some wine. Vincent painted to escape and to express, and in a way, that's what John 1 is, is telling us. Christ comes to give for us an opportunity to find escape, to be loosed, to be free of these lies. And yet, he also gives us opportunity to express both our joy and our pain to him. That's what I love about God. He welcomes them both. And in the midst of all of those broken relationships around him, the one beautiful thing I had say about both Vincent and Jesus is that they both made for themselves family of those around them. See, when Jesus didn't have a brother or a sister following him around and saying, hey, that's my brother, he started calling his friends brother and sister. When his real family isn't there, he picks up the pieces and makes them complete. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. And as he sat there on that Thursday before his death, on the following day, he looked at those, those 12 men or so around that table, the 12 who had been there, the 12 who had eaten amongst the 5,000, the 12 who had been there when the, sh- the sea had been tossing their ship, the 12 who had been there when the dead had come to life, and who were about to die, but who had found life in his name. You see, it was a communal movement. It was a growing movement. These disciples were, were being taken note of, and I think it has to do with Christ being willing to call us his children. I want you to notice something at the end of our verses this morning. It, it is over and over again we have a singular um, tense. That's the verbal tense here. Not to get grammatical here, but it's all singular up until verses 11, 12, 13 where we just read. The world did not know him, singular, but to those who receive him, to them, he says, my grace is for you. It is a free gift. If you could earn it, it wouldn't be called grace. (laughs) So receive it and share it. And we do. (laughs) Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. That's verse 16. It's grace upon grace. It's almost like (laughs) a loaf of bread being broken and passed, broken, and passed. And by some miracle, you could count as many people as you wanted to. It could be 5,000 or more out there and just the bread doesn't seem to run out. 
When I hear grace upon grace, I hear testimony upon testimony. Hmm. And that's the church's job now, is to testify, is to express that light to this world. It is a challenge at times, and it can be a loud and a bright place for the light of Jesus to shine. So circumstances sometimes are a challenge. But yet, in the fullness of time, Christ comes. It was his time to come. And though at his birth, his life was in danger, in his death, it is death that is in danger. It is not the end of life. It is the end of death, my friends. You may not believe me, <laughs> but trust the many who have gone before. The grace upon grace. And perhaps you haven't seen it in your everyday for some time now. Sometimes the person who helps us see that is an unlikely source. A name you don't know. <laughs> Maybe someone you haven't even met yet. Could even sound strange like Joanne Bonger or something like this. That's a real name. <laughs> she was the widow to Theo Van Gogh. You see, in the midst of everything, we forget who was left behind. Joanne was left behind with their children. And so, no husband, and having already buried Vincent, she was left with these 2,000 or so paintings, because Vincent, from the age of 27 to the age of 37 on his death, had painted over 2,200 canvases. Here she had this massive collection. She goes to move in with her brother younger brother, who has a distaste for everything French and all that is uh, Vincent and all that is this Van Gogh uh, art world stuff and says, oh, it's all garbage. Just put it in the burn pile. That's what we'll do with it. But yet, for one person who says, I'm going to take these letters, these, these words are important. I'm going to take these images. Somebody's going to want to see these someday. And she put them together. And in a recent book that just uh, was published this, um, this past year, you can read about her story and her difficulty of how she curated this entire uh, library of work from one of our great Dutch masters and how she told the story alongside of it and how we wouldn't know anything about Vincent van Gogh, Starry Nights, or anything of the like, if it weren't for one person willing to say, there's life here still. You see, she saw Vincent after spending two months underground with those who were digging coal and a mine collapse leads to hundreds and thousands being harmed or displaced. She smelt what he smelt like coming in off the streets. And yet she said, as foul, as dead and rank 
as he smelled, as he looked, she could see life. There are about seven days until Christmas Day. I hope that's not a surprise to some of you. But friends, we don't have to wait until then for him to come. We can have him make a home in our hearts today. And he wants to be in relationship with you. And as a church, we are committing ourselves every time we lift these symbols of our commitment. We commit ourselves to Christ and to his call to to tell and to teach, to go and to baptize, to welcome and to feed. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can have one today. There is room for you. That's why John writes his gospel. These things are written down so that you may believe and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He asks for our trust, that we admit, that we believe that he is who he says he is, the Savior, in that we are who we are, those in need of saving. He asks for our attention, He asks for us to listen to him. He speaks to us through his word, but he also speaks, as we are encouraged by our praise team, to listen to our hearts as he speaks to us that way as well. And he asks for us to walk and talk with him, sharing meals with each other, with strangers even. He came to the world, and the world did not receive him. So you're asking, how do I receive him? By asking him to help you start over. To start seeing the world through his eyes. And when you do, (laughs) you won't see things quite the same way. You won't hear life quite the same way. (laughs) You won't taste life quite the same way. We're going to commune together. And if you're here trusting Jesus as your source of life and light, this meal is for you. If you receive that grace in your heart, there's nothing stopping you from participating in this grace. If you are in Uh, here in need of prayer or here in need of a church community or here because you're beginning your walk with Jesus Christ, don't leave this place without our being able to pray with you and to get to know you. We have a couple of prayer partners that at the end of the service are going to be available after we um, do our parting blessing. They'll be down here at the front and we'd be happy to uh, pray with you and for you If you wish to get connected, Pastor Nicole's already mentioned, you can get connected at our welcome desk, the info desk there with our connect cards or send us um, a message over social media if you're listening on YouTube right now. You are not alone. This is a community of faith. 
united in one common bond, that we were lost in need of being found, hungry in need of food, and he's invited us to take a seat. Let us pray a blessing over this meal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with hearts full and stomachs empty, waiting to be filled anew with you. Something miraculous happens, Lord, when we partake of this meal for its physical, Lord, these small calories that we take in. But it feeds us so deeply, Lord, and so we ask that in the midst of this time of communion now, that you be with us and bless us, that you forgive us, Lord, where we fail you, and that as we come to this table, we all come under the same umbrella of grace, receiving from you exactly the same, because there's nothing we could do to earn a place or a spot of proximity close to you. And so, Lord, thank you for drawing us near. Thank you for being so accessible that we can hold you in our hands and taste this drink and this bread as a reminder of your presence. Be with us now and bless these elements, we pray. Bless those who are listening online and those who are fellowshipping with us perhaps later on in this day. May we commune as one, Lord, to the same miracle as you enabled 5,000 to eat with such uh, few ingredients. Lord, we thank you for the same miracle that presides over today, that as we commune from um, uh, loaves from many different grains and, and juice pressed from so many different grapes, Lord, we thank you for your presence with us, not only in this place, but worldwide as well. Bless us, we pray, as we partake in Christ's name. Amen.